0: You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27 for the sermon this morning. Luke nineteen eleven through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, "'taking what I did not deposit "'and reaping what I did not sow? "'Why then did you not put my money in the bank "'and at my coming I might have collected it with interest?' "'And he said to those who stood by, "'Take the mina from him "'and give it to the one who has the ten minus.' "'And they said to him, "'Lord, he has ten minus. "'I tell you that everyone who has more will be given.' But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Uh, Father,
1: I pray that we would lean in to this teaching that is like Gold, Father, to be taught by Christ Himself. Lord, I pray that you would grant ears to hear, that we would lean in, uh, that it would have its full effect on us, Father. Lord, that it would sanctify even more uh, your people and that it might call to life those uh, who are dead. God, I pray that uh, Your Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a will that would be willing to submit to You. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The question I want to begin with uh, this morning is this. Do you know what time it is? If you don't know what time it is, you don't know what to do. Isn't that true in your daily life? I remember being in high school and taking a Sunday afternoon nap and waking up at 7 o'clock, being disoriented, and going and taking a shower and putting my clothes on for school, only to find out that it was 7 o'clock in the evening. I didn't know what time it was, so I didn't know what to do. And this is a concern that Christ has as He approaches Jerusalem. His concern is, is that His disciples in all Of Israel has no idea what time it is. In fact, if we were to look at Luke chapter 20, that we're going to look at in a couple weeks, when he describes the destruction of Jerusalem, he says the purpose of that in 1944 is you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know that This was the Christ. They didn't know that this was the Messiah because they expected the Messiah to do something very different, not because the Scripture didn't say He wasn't going to do it, but because they didn't know the time He was going to do what the Scripture said He was going to do. So if we don't know what time it is, it affects how we live if i were to ask this question to you i wonder how you would respond did christ have a controlling influence in your life last week did christ have a controlling influence on your life last week or did, have you gotten to Sunday and kind of remembered, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, this is what I do. If you're here today and you're honestly saying, well, I live my last week just like I live most weeks, which is kind of go with the flow. I would encourage you this morning to realize what time it is what time frame your present life is being lived in. And so as we look at this text, uh, we're going to begin in verse 11, and I want to give a little bit of background that will help us understand it. So if you look at verse 11, what we read is, this transition statement that, that, that says, as they heard these things. So whenever you read something like this, you realize that Luke is connecting what's being taught here to what was previously taught. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because... He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is seeking to correct their expectations as they draw near to Jerusalem. So what were these things? What did we talk about Last time, well, if you go back to Luke 19.1, we realize he entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho is 17 miles from Jerusalem. They're getting very close to Jerusalem. This section in this travel narrative in Luke's gospel that started in 951 and is coming to a conclusion as he comes into Jerusalem is coming to an end and there's a fever pitch among the disciples and among those who've been listening and following Jesus' ministry, and they see it coming. They see what is coming, but as they heard these things, and we remember, what are these things? If you look at verse 9 and 10 of Luke 19, Jesus said to them, "Today salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things. That's what chapter 18 was all about. Jesus saving those who people thought would never be saved. Jesus aligning his life with people that had no political authority. How, how is he rising to power that way? Well, he came to seek and save the lost and he was drilling this over and over and over. Remember all of chapter 15, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And Jesus is coming to seek and save that which is lost that's what he is doing and if you don't understand the timing of jesus's life you won't understand how all these prophecies about the messiah can be true even the very things jesus said the writer of hebrews tells us in 928 he says so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the first coming of Christ is to seek and save the lost, to come, give his life as a ransom for many, to save Zacchaeus and the tax collector and the widow and the prodigal son. That's what he came to do. But that's not what people were expecting from the Messiah. They weren't expecting Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. What? Jesus is saying this to all of them? Even our Gentile enemies that we want their heads cut off? Jesus is calling them all to come to him and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden was light. Here's what they were expecting, Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Israel's finally going to have his enemies broken. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire when the Messiah comes all enemies go away for to us a child is born and a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father and prince of peace and it even gets better and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, the zeal of the Lord will do this. This is what they were expecting from the Messiah. And they ought to have expected it from the Messiah because the Messiah will do all that in his time they were expecting daniel 7:13 to come true and i saw in the night visions and behold clouds of heaven came and there was one like the son of man he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages would serve him in his dominion are Are in his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so as they are coming towards Jerusalem, they've been waiting for the day. They are so tired of political enemies oppressing them, being unjust, not doing what is right. And they're this close. They're 17 miles away. Finally, our enemies will be gone. And our Messiah will lord his authority over them. In fact, the term in verse 11, where it says because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear, it's a nautical term. It's uh, the term used one other time in Acts when they're coming to an island, Paul's coming to an island and the island started to appear. If you were traveling by ship and for days and months you were going towards a destination, you're waiting for the time when the land finally shows up and your destination is in front of you. And because he came to seek and save the lost and because they don't understand the timing of things, Jesus tells this parable. If I just threw you the parable of the ten minas and Luke didn't tell us why he told it, you would never come up with that idea of the purpose to correct the timing of things. The reason why there's prophecies of both the gentle Savior that seeks and saves the lost. <laughs> and because Jesus says things like this, listen, listen to John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in an order that the world might be saved through him someone might say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is going to sit on David's throne and bring justice. He is, but that's not why he came the first time. In John 12, 47, he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the one who rejects me does not receive my words And does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge it on the last day. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is showing us how the judging Christ, the Revelation 19, the King of Kings, who comes with a rod of iron and slaughters his enemies is the Messiah, is Jesus, and he will come. And when we preach the gospel, we need to tell people about that day. But the first time he came, he came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to seek and save Israel's enemies. And so let's look at uh, this parable. The charge of this message is to live faithful lives while waiting for the kingdom. If you've ever studied anything about the kingdom, you hear about it's already, but not yet. It's already here in one sense. Luke has already taught us that the kingdom is in your midst. It's inside of you in a way that no one can observe but is coming like lightning in heaven where no one will miss it. Everyone will see it. And so we read that as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was drawing near Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately, and this is point one in your sermons, understand God's timing. Acts 21 two um, or, I'm sorry, Acts one verses six through eleven show us that the disciples, though Jesus taught over and over and over again about the timing of things, it never sunk in. They never understood it. They never got it. Because even after Jesus is now ascended from the dead, they're looking around at all their political enemies that are about ready to pounce on them. And here's what they ask in Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Fair question. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm not restoring the kingdom to Israel. I rejected them. That's not what he says. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth And when he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white clothes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's not going to come in some spiritual way. He's going to come on the clouds in the same way, in a real body, in a resurrected body. Jesus Christ is coming back on the earth, but until then, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to make disciples of every nation. Why do you stand there looking? You have a job to do. Don't you know what time it is? Now's the time to carry the message of the kingdom to the nations. Yeah, but we want, our, we want to take control of the governments and we want, we want all justices righted and, and we want everything to flourish. Well, that time's coming. But as a servant, you don't get to do everything. You get to declare the gospel. Christ will come and he will tread his enemies. He'll tread the wide press of the wrath of God himself. And that day people will say the prince of peace. Why is there peace then? Because the only ones left will be those who are born again and all of his enemies will be destroyed. And justice will be done because he will be judge on this earth. And then we read in verse 12: He said, therefore, and he gets to the parable. Now, in the parable, there is a nobleman and there is 10 servants, and there are citizens that hate Christ. One of the incredible things about Christ's parables is they, in a sense, are all-encompassing. They grab everyone. There's sheep and there's goats, and you're one of them. And we're going to see here that there are those who are good servants, prosperous servants. We're going to see those who are indifferent, wicked servants. And then we're going to see those that just outright hate Christ. And you're in this parable. (laughs) That's one of the things that struck me is I was reading MacArthur's commentary. He says, if you don't tremble, you're crazy. Because you're here. You're one of them. And the main point, one of the main people talked about is the person sitting in church that's indifferent. That no one would guess is going to be in trouble. And so it's important as we look at these characters to think about who they are and who we are. And when we begin to understand God's timing, we begin to understand God's purpose and what he's left us to do. And then we'll look at God's accounting. So we, here's what we read. A nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom, re- receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now we might read that in our culture and say what's a nobleman and what do you mean he went to receive a country what does it mean to go to receive that well in Jesus's day as most of his parables uh, were stories of things they understood very well to help them understand things they didn't know very well they would have understand this crystal clear Forty years before Christ was born, Herod the Great went and convinced Mark Antony to let him be a king over Judea. Now, Israel, Judea was under Roman rule and Rome understood that as they conquered these different cultures, that they had certain ways they would live and rather than just change them, they would, he, they would grant authority to many kings like Herod to rule over the land and try to keep peace so that the kingdom could spread. And so Herod went and became a king. And then four years after Christ was born and Herod died, his region got split up between his three children and one of his our our three sons one of his sons uh, was named Archelaus and unlike the politicians of our day that try to tell us everything we want to hear so that we would vote for them the way a king often would try to rule his people is make them afraid of his authority and then uh they would bow to his every wish and so archelaus after he took over the territory of judea four years after christ was born he slaughtered uh, and and this this is four days after the passover he slaughtered 3000 jews and they hated him for it mm-hmm. they hate this ruler But Archelaus, after doing this, needed to have his authority confirmed in Rome. So as he goes to Rome, what do the Jews do? They send spokesmen to say, we don't want him to reign over us. We hate him. He's slaughtered us. And so Rome, being political, themselves said, okay, you can have authority over that territory, uh, but you're not going to be called a king uh, you're going to be called uh, Ethnart until you can win the people over. Then we'll give you the title of a king. Well, he never won the people over. And uh, after that, there was governors. Pilate was a governor over that land. So this parable, they're in Jericho and Archelaus built a big palace in Jericho, and he built an aqueduct so everyone remembered him. This story is not a foreign story. And so he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until... I come. So they're thinking, oh, we know a story like this. And the nobleman in this parable is obviously Christ. And Christ is going to go away. One of noble birth, that's what a nobleman means, is going to go away and he's going to receive a kingdom. And he's going to put servants in charge until... He returns. And this is when you read the New Testament. Uh, Later in Luke 24, 26, it says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Or Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified? He went, the son of man went to the ancient of days, Daniel seven, and the ancient of days gave all authority to this son of man, the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. That's how Jesus referred to himself. And we see that he gave them 10 minus to engage in business, in the king's business. If you're a Christian, you are saved to engage in the business of Christ. Ephesians 2 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost so that they might engage in his business, that they might be ambassadors for Christ, witnesses to the end of the earth. And then we see, So there we see the purpose of why we're here. The the sermon title is in the meantime. What are you supposed to be doing? What's supposed to be guiding your decisions in your life? What's supposed to be helping you discern what you do with God's money and with the time God has allotted to you? Because we see that an accounting comes in verse 14. So when the nobleman's gone, here's what we read, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So that's familiar to their story with Archelaus, but this is familiar with what the Jews did to Christ. We don't want him. He's not going to be our king. How did it work out for the people that sent a delegation? Archelaus came back king, right? The delegation didn't work. And the Jews saying, we don't want him. He's from the devil. Also didn't work. And here you see the rebellion. Here you see the rebellious. One of the roots of sin is the pride of wanting autonomy. I don't want authority over me. I want to do it my own way. That's what we see in our culture. I don't want to be a woman. I don't want to be a man. I don't want to be married to the opposite sex. I want autonomy. I want out from under this authority. We live and breathe a culture that is in rebellion to God and his authority. And we read in verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There was an expectation of prosperity there was an expectation that there would be a type of repentance that would bring about fruits, the fruits of repentance. I first had the faithful servants and the unfaithful servants, but if I'm staying true to the text, it's the prosperous servants. And those who have the spirit of God in them, those who tremble before God's word, God will bring about fruit. And he will bring about a sort of prosperity, maybe not in the way the world expects it, but in a way that brings glory to God. It might be the type of fruit of integrity of a man who's tempted alone and no one's around, but he fights the fight of faith with no one to give him praise. It might be that type of fruit where no one knows but God alone, but he fears God. He believes God. He believes God is there. And so we read in verse 15, when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that they might, he might know what they had gained by doing business The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. One of the things MacArthur points out here is, Lord, your mina and your economy has made 10 more. It wasn't, look what I did. Look at how great I was. But isn't this how the Lord's servant ought to be? What are you that you, what do you have that you haven't received? What good can you do that doesn't come from the power of the Spirit? And so we see a humility. And a mina, by the way, is three months wages, not nearly as big as a talent. This is similar to the parable of the talent, but that was told in a different place. It's a different story with three people, not 10, with a different amount of money, a talent, is a huge amount of money. A mina is three months amount of money. And here's what we read. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. So he was faithful. He was faithful and and prosperous. You shall have authority over ten cities and they would have fell over. what? That's like over a state. So you give them this little about amount of money and they produce 10 minus out of 1 and now you're gonna give them ten cities. What kind of grace is this? What kind of reward? is this, this would have been shocking to them. And then we read in verse 18, and a second came saying, your mina has made five. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. This is incredible grace. But then in verse 20, we read then another, which is the word heteros, which means one of a different kind. There's a different kind of servant. Came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief. Everyone knew you were supposed to bury it in the ground if you had treasured it. I laid it away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a, a severe man and you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not <laughs> sow. So the third servant comes and says, oh, here, I I threw this in a handkerchief. Here it is. The reason why I didn't risk anything with it, the reason why I didn't put any effort into it is because you're a thief and you're a cruel master and you reap where you didn't sow and you take where you didn't deposit and so he blames the unrighteousness of the nobleman for the reason why he didn't do what he was supposed to do. But he's a servant. He was in church. He was religious. He wasn't the rep, one of the rebels. People might not have known, but he didn't believe God is good. And if you don't believe God is good, you won't risk anything for him. You won't put effort in for him for you don't think he's worthy of your work and your wife. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. He, he's basically... It, he's literally saying, you knowing that I was a severe man, which, by the way, we already know he's not. He's just shown grace upon grace to the first two servants. But he says, let me just run with your pathetic excuse. If you really feared me and you thought I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might collect it with interest. He's saying it's a lame excuse. You weren't concerned at all for my return. You didn't realize I was coming. You didn't realize you were going to give an account for your life. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. This is tough. Lavish grace is hard for us to comprehend. Right? Lord, he's already got 10. You're going to give it to him, but Jesus has already been teaching this principle. I tell you that to everyone who has will be given more and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The way Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 6, he says he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's grace never stops giving. It always gets richer and richer and richer to the point where people want to say, hey, 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 stop. This can't be. And so we see the indifferent servant, the one that looked religious, that he is, not only doesn't love Christ, he accuses Christ of wrongdoing. He accuses Christ of being unfair in his judgments. And then we see in verse 27 these Rebels again. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What time are we in? We are in a time when Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, where Christ is at the right hand of God When Stephen was dying, he looked up, he saw Christ in that high position. We're in a time when he's given you and he's given me incredible privilege of opportunity and responsibility. And we live in a time when in order to live for Christ, it's going to be risky. It's risky to take one minor and make ten it takes wisdom it takes effort it takes prayer it takes the power of god but he will come he will come and those who think that christ is forever gonna be the gentle and lowly Savior that just says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden need to know that there is a time that nobody knows when he will break forth from heaven. And this will be a glorious day for those who have been waiting for him. With those whose weeks have been determined By their relationship with Him. And what I'm not saying is that this is a perfect person. What I'm saying is if your week last week wasn't a battle against your flesh, wasn't a battle for holiness, then you know not Christ. I'm not saying that you're happy with your week. Who's happy? when Christ deserves our greatest. But the question is, is do you know he's worthy? Do you know he's good? Do you know he's coming again? Do you believe he's coming again? Can you endure persecution knowing that the day Christ comes, all evil will be done away with? All evil. Wrongs will be righted. The only thing that won't seem right for all eternity is grace. Because that doesn't seem fair. How can God give us that which we don't deserve? And so, where are you located? The biggest battle in the fight of faith is this Do you believe the Lord is good? Because the moment the lie comes into your life and you look at your circumstances and you start to say, is God really good? Is God really good in light of these circumstances? That's when our faith starts to become weak. That's when we quit caring about living for the kingdom of God. And that's why we need each other because life's hard in this fallen world. And we need to remind one another that God is good, that this is a limited time. This is a time where Jesus said, hey, they hated me, don't think you're better than me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So be faithful. I will come back. I will reward beyond what you can imagine. Father, thank you that you opened the curtain to your throne through the blood of Christ, that the lost can come streaming into your presence in a moment when they cling to Christ by faith. Father, I thank you that for every Christian here, the promise that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus would wash over their hearts. And in that incredible peace, a drive to be faithful, not to earn salvation, but because the nobleman is worthy. The one of noble birth is worthy of our best. Father, I pray that that would be true. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.